Hello and welcome to Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London and hosted by me, Adrian Wooten, CEO of Film London, where we talk to people from across the screen industries about what they've created and how they've created it. In this week's episode, we're talking somewhat appropriately about horror, a genre that has a long and incredibly creative history in English literature and British cinema. Many new British creatives are now picking up on this tradition and taking the genre into fresh and exciting territory. And this week, we're talking to two breakthrough directors. This week, we have Prano Bailey Bond, who worked with Film London on her film Short Lease back in 2010. This year, her video Nazis-inspired debut feature, Censor, was released in UK cinemas to considerable acclaim, and she was recently longlisted for two British Independent Film Awards. We also have Rob Savage, who, after writing and directing his first feature film at 17 years of age, went on to direct Host, the Zoom-shot cult horror sensation of 2020. That film was recently called, scientifically, the scariest film of all time, in a study of audience members' heart rates. And his latest film, Dashcam, premiered this month at the London Film Festival. First, here's Prana Bailey Bond, discussing the history of horror and more with our creative programmes advisor, Nadia Oliver. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, Enid. No one's going to pick this up and think it's a documentary. It's so fake. For you, it might be sausages for intestines, but what if it gets into the hands of children? Exactly. Kids could be rewinding and watching those scenes over and over again. Which is exactly what new government guidelines are pointing out. Video technology is changing the rules. guidelines. Great. Not as if we haven't got enough on our hands. How can we do our job properly if we're constantly bogged down by government bureaucracy? It's the nation's sanity they're worried about. Why don't they stop slashing social services? Okay, I get it. But I'm afraid... We're not here to debate the government. Can we get back on track, please? Um, so to start off, can you tell us a bit about Sensor? Um, where did the kernel of the idea come from and what has been its journey to the big screen so far? Well, um, I mean, yeah, the kernel of the idea was that that actually came to me quite a long time ago. So we didn't start writing the, the script until 2016, but I had the first sort of seed of the idea in 2012. Um, so it was brewing for quite a long time there. And Anthony and Fletcher and I, who I wrote the script with, were researching during that period as well, as well as making uh, short films. And I was making lots of music videos. But the idea really came from reading this article um, about the Hammer Horror era. Uh, so slightly earlier than when the film is set. But one of the comments in this article was that one of the only rules censors had during that period was that the sight of blood on the breast of a woman would be cut because they believed it would make men likely to commit rape. And I was really intrigued by this comment because I thought, well, surely so many of the censors were men. So, you know, if these violent images are meant to make us lose control, what is it that protects the film censor from, you know, violent acts? Um, and I guess from there, I was just really interested in telling the story of a film censor. And I felt like it was maybe a way for me to explore my own and our relationship with horror. Um, I think when you're making horror and horror adjacent work, you're often asked, you know, why horror? And and this was something that I felt could give me space to kind of probe into that in a way. 
Um, I understand that you were recently able to watch the film with a live audience, which I'm sure felt like such a coup considering the current circumstances. Um, what did it mean to be able to watch with an audience and why do you think horror in, in specific should be watched with an audience? Yeah, I loved seeing it with an audience. The first time I saw it with an audience was at the BFI South Bank in NFT1, which is an amazing screen. And it was for the woman with a movie camera um, program. And we were, you know, we had a preview of Sensor and it was such a great audience. Everyone was responding so well to, you know, the humor and the scares. And, you know, it, it just felt really wonderful to sort of see it and feel the room. And I think as a filmmaker, you, you, there's a different stage in your relationship with your work when you start to watch it with an audience and you're letting go of the, you know, the director's goggles that are constantly judging the work and wanting to improve it because you, you just have to stop working on it at some point. And then you start to see what's worked and what's landed um, as you intended. And, and that was great. And I mean, we always made Sensor to be seen in the cinema. It's shot on 35 millimeter. Um, you know, that's something you get, you know, it, it's even more impactful when it's on a big screen rather than seeing it on a tiny screen. You don't really appreciate, I think, the texture and, and the image as much. And also the sound in a cinema is, you know, we put so much detail into the sound design on this film and the music. And to see that with a proper sound setup and 5.1 surround is a different experience. It's so much more immersive. I think it's so important to see any film in the cinema, personally. I mean, there's obviously the ones that you're like, that's a hangover film, right? And you just want to watch it on the sofa. I'm going to watch this on the <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the, you know, for me, cinema is my kind of, my version of church. <laughs> um, I go there to be immersed in another world and hopefully come out feeling a bit like I've, you know, been to another planet and, and come back and experience something new. And I don't think you get that when you're at home with lots of distractions around and not having turned your phone off and, you know, notifications popping up or people coming in and out. I think um, it's really a different experience going to the cinema, but particularly horror. It's such a roller coaster ride, horror you know, it's it's um, a very physical experience watching a horror film, more physical, I think, than any other genre. And so you get so much more out of that from being around other people who are also experiencing that roller coaster ride and reacting. And, you know, it's a, it's a, a group experience and um, just much more thrilling on the big screen. So I wanted to talk about uh, the concept of moral panic, and this is obviously something that came up a lot when I was reading about the film and the research that you did around the area, era of, um, of video nasties. And it, it seems like a lot of moral panic sort of comes from this place of worrying that at any moment the world is at risk of unfurling in some way or society will unravel in some way. And it's kind of this fear-based response to uh, target or scape scapegoat or something like that. And um, obviously this is set during the Margaret Thatcher era in Britain in 1985 and during which censor is set. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how this informed this type of video censorship and what sort of came up in your in your research at that time. 
Yeah, I mean, the moral panic that happened around VHS horror was the the kind of draw for me to that era. And I think when you're setting something as a period film, you need a reason. You know, I I remember during the development process, it being suggested that, well, we still have censors, so why can't it be a contemporary film? And, you know, that would never have made sense in my mind because the draw is this period and what was going on around, you know, people's reaction to new technology, VHS, and this new way of being able to watch and consume films and that leading to a boom in low-budget horror films, um, which could now be viewed direct in the home. Children could maybe get their hands on them. People could rewind and rewatch them. And there was a, a, you know, social hysteria and moral panic around what these films were going to potentially do to our brains and were they going to turn us all into murderers and, and psychopaths. And I think what fascinates me about that is, um, I guess, this idea of us being so frightened of ourselves or thinking that we are all one sort of step away from you know, our kind of inner demons being unleashed, you know, that that there's something deep and dark within us all and it, we're just waiting for a piece of technology to come along and change the way we think or act. Um, and, and I guess that's really interesting because it's like, do we think there's an inherent badness to us as humans or, you know, and I guess I was exploring that within the character as well. You know, Enid thinks that about herself. So it was about... I always wanted it to be about film censor who's having a complicated relationship with their own moral compass, but setting it during this period, it was, you know, being echoed in society. Um, it's happened around lots of art, you know, and now we have it around video games and we have, um, we've had it around comic books in the fifties and it's been music, you know, rap or Marilyn Manson music. And I think, it's an easy scapegoat for us to blame art rather than to look at the actual issues that might cause problems in society. It's much easier to go, oh, let's get rid of all the video nasties than actually go, well, maybe we need to think about the mental health of our community and looking after each other more and making people, making sure people have what they need to live a comfortable and safe life. Um, because people don't go out and do terrible things because they've watched a horror film or heard a Marilyn Manson track. They go out and do that because they're either mentally not well or they don't feel safe or they feel that they've, you know, got, uh, they have to venge, revenge something or, you know, there's so, it's so complicated. Um, you can't just blame art. And so all of those ideas were basically the ideas that I wanted to explore within the film. So the theme of blame became, you know, one of the strongest themes in the film. And we have a character who's blaming themselves for everything and being blamed, or at least thinks she's being blamed for things, um, blaming herself for tiny mistakes um, and and really like having those tiny mistakes weigh her down um, and not just accepting that sometimes bad things do happen or you'd make a mistake and that's human and um you know for her it just builds up and up and up until it's um it's uh, huge and 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 devastating um so that moral panic as a central idea was 
you know, a huge thing for me and kind of both research and meaning and what I wanted to explore. Yeah, and it, it totally comes through in all these different nuanced ways. And I, I like what you were saying about how we sort of um, point towards art in a lot of ways to to grapple with that rather than acknowledging these sort of larger questions of power and systemic injustice and, and all of these things that people don't want to face. Um, you, you mentioned sort of Enid's journey as well, and I'm sort of interested in sort of the balancing of the personal trauma that she's sort of working through and what you were just alluding to as sort of a political or sort of collective trauma or injustices that people are facing during that time. Um, so there's there's that point where one of Enid's colleagues, uh, a woman censored after a particularly gory screening, um, Enid asks her, uh, or the colleague asks Enid rather, um, what is it with these directors? And Enid, Enid responds, male inadequacy and revenge catharsis, which I thought was like a really quick little aside. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to um, sort of the why horror question that you spoke to before. Of, um, how does horror sort of hold up a mirror? And how did you sort of think about um, Enid in the context of this larger um, censorship question? Yeah, I think um, it probably became more and more about Enid as as it developed, and then sh- her personal journey started to um, embody the wider research that we were doing. And then she almost, I guess, that journey took over more and more. I think there were more elements of society and the press um, in other earlier iterations of the script, um, but I feel like. Um, over time, yeah, like I say, she was kind of embodying that. So she kind of took took over and I became more and more obsessed with her journey. I think it is a story of an obsessive woman obsessing about a detail in her life. And then meanwhile, I was becoming obsessed with Enid. And then everybody in the crew then also became obsessed with Enid. And then you also asked about horror holding up a mirror. Um I think, you know, horror, like for me, horror is, I kind of think of horror as the return of the repressed and the thing that particularly, you know, I think that can be true for some films in particular. And I think, I think censor is one of those films in that it's about the thing that you're not able to face in your life or in yourself. It's about the thing that isn't palatable or you think it's not palatable in yourself that you're trying to push away and ignore. But the more you do that, the stronger and more twisted and more poisonous that is going to become. And I think in horror, you can manifest that in a way that is imaginative and surreal and scary and, and can be manifested in, you know, not in censor, but in other films that could become, you know, like in the Babadook that becomes the monster, the grief becomes the monster and, you can see the character fighting that um, internal uh, fear or that internal repressed element in an active, you know, uh, kind of imaginative, surreal way that brings that thing to life. And I think that's the brilliant, fun thing about horror. Um, It's quite expressionistic in a way, like, like I say, you're manifesting internal fears and, things on the outside um and you can kind of do anything in horror as long as it's 
logical as long as you have an internal logic to the to the film um it's terrible i i hate it when you watch a film and it's like oh the monster can't do xyz but then suddenly in act 3 because they need the story to like move on that suddenly the monster the rules completely change and so i think it's about having an internal logic but ultimately it's the most you know similar art form to our nightmares horror film and and so i think you've got to such an imaginative surreal space to play in in the genre and that for me is a huge draw um yeah that's so interesting too because you know you mentioned and this is sort of the crux of the film by by virtue of the fact that it's about censorship it's like monstrous to whom depraved or corrupt for whom nightmarish for whom and there's a, a subjectivity i suppose in what we find scary um in in a lot of ways and i feel like um in its character i guess sort of um Enid's character, when she goes to the video store and she tries to take out one of Northman's films, there's a sense of, of gatekeeping or sort of censorship in that sort of small moment as well, where he says, you're not the type of girl or you're not the type of person who would watch something like this. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about the sort of subjectivity of censorship and also Enid playing a person who is a censor, um, but then also about horror audiences in, in general. There's obviously so much weird gatekeeping that goes on in that too. And did you have an audience in mind when sort of writing the film? Yeah, I think it was interesting when we were thinking about audience because you're constantly asked about audience when you're developing a project nowadays. You know, you're, you're having to think, who's this for? And, you know, me and my producer, Helen Jones, talked about that a lot and always wanted to make something that both worked for the cult horror audience, um, but didn't feel like it was exclusively for that audience, that it was something that ideally you could come to with no knowledge of the period and enjoy as a character study um, and perhaps might draw, you know, intrigue into the period and make people want to go and find out more about the video nasty era and and what happened um so audience wise we were fairly broad and it's been really interesting actually talking to people so for example i've had friends come and see the film who have said i'm i'm coming to see it because it's your film but i just i can't watch horror it just scares me too much you know it's, and i i've been said i've said to them please come and see it because it's not what you know people have a, a kind of idea of what horror is I think some people think it's just like Saw and you know that 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 kind of film like it's like all super extreme and I think when people think of the video nasties they might think they're really extreme um but those friends who've come to see the film have really loved it and and I feel like I'm trying to lure more and more people over to the the dark horror side <laughs> because I think that there's so much to discover in horror that on the surface, it can seem like it's really um, intense, gory stuff because that's the stuff that's always shown in little clips. But many of these films have stories and interesting characters and journeys that they go on and um, more to them than maybe the clips that you see. Absolutely. Um, there's a sense in which it's so, sort of morphing as well. And I don't really like terms like, 
you know, high concept horror, elevated horror, anything like that. But there, there does seem to be a sense in which, um, you know, people like yourself are pushing the boundaries of what psychological exploration looks like within the genre. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to that, if there's anyone working as, as a peer or in this industry as well that you're super excited about and the sort of shifting mode of the genre. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of people creating really interesting kind of hybrid horror or horror adjacent work. And I guess, you know, one of the first people that springs to mind is Robert Eggers and what he did with The Witch. And I know The Lighthouse wasn't horror, but I, I, when I first saw The Witch, I don't think I blinked. I don't know if I breathed through that film. It was just this incredibly tense fusion of of horror and art house and dark drama. And I just was totally in love with that. And I, I, I'm really excited about um, that kind of work. And I think we've seen it in films like Raw and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and St. Maud. Um, you know, I think there is this really interesting fusion with um, either, like you say, psychological drama or art house kind of work. Um, and obviously that does upset some people <laughs> because the like hardcore mainstream horror fans don't think that horror should be messed with. Um, but again, it's like there's room for everything ultimately. And it we can't just be like, this is one flavor of horror and that's all you're getting. Like we need lots of different flavors of these things and it's an evolution and... Um, I think these films are like just so exciting. They're my favorite films of recent years. So, yeah, and something like your film or some of the ones that you just mentioned really um, shift our perception of what horror can be, and it's important and necessary and exciting all at the same time that the industry is perhaps beginning to hold space for that kind of hybridity in, in genre and sort of understanding it in in different ways. Um, just in sort of wrapping up, as I know that we're sort of wrapping up on time, um, if anyone is listening and wants to make their first horror film, what advice would you sort of give? I know that, you know, we talk a lot in horror about um, screen techniques and the ways you can sort of like write that into the script and how, what's your sort of relationship to that and what advice do you have for anyone trying to make horror? Um, I think understanding the genre and understanding whether your idea fits into the genre could be a good start thinking about what scares you or I think for me you know I when I was writing censor I was so involved in the story and I really felt it and there were certain scenes that maybe not scared me but particularly like scenes that maybe made me feel really emotional and those are the scenes in the film now that I am like wow they, I still get that feeling from that scene and and I, I think it's trusting the way that the story makes you feel and making sure that it does make you feel something, whether you're looking to scare people or make people cry or make people laugh. You know, there has to be um, something authentic about that. And I think that has to come from like you genuinely feeling that about the work yourself. Like it's always for me the character and the idea that's tended to bring me to horror um, I didn't really set out to make horror in the first place. It was more like, actually, it was funny because I submitted a different project to Film London when I um, 
when I, you know, it was that funding scheme where I ended up making short lease. And we got down with the project I'd submitted, I think we got down to the last like 10 or something. And then I got a phone call saying we hadn't got the, or an email saying we hadn't got the, um, the award for our film. But then I got a phone call saying, you know, we've seen your show reel and we can see that you're a horror director and we have this horror script that doesn't have a director and would you be interested? And I remember thinking, oh, am I a horror director? <laughs> and I hadn't really been set, setting out to make horror, but then I looked at my show reel and I was like, oh yeah, I think I am making horror. So it was actually Film London that told me I was a horror director and then I made short lease with Film London and... Um, thought well that's fine I'm happy to be sort of branded this if it means people are coming to me and saying would you like to make this film because they obviously identify you know a certain type of filmmaking with you and that's drawing them them to you so that was a really interesting moment for me because I thought well I can embrace this or I can um, fight it which I would never have done because like I say I love horror but I think it's interesting because I wasn't thinking about the genre first I've always thought about the idea and the character first and because my brain is dark and weird <laughs> that's taken me to dark weird places in in the genre absolutely well thank you so much and it's so good to chat with you at this point in your journey and it's so wonderful to be able to say that censor has been in cinemas this this summer and and, and going into the fall as well so Thank you so much and can't wait to see what you work on next. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Huge thank you to Prana Bellybond for that chat. Sensor is available to rent now on various digital platforms. Now here's Rob Savage discussing how to film the perfect jump scare and more with our digital coordinator, Charlie Ralph. So, hi Rob. Hey. Hi. Uh, so we are talking about horror today, um, and I thought best way to start off, obviously, let's talk about hosts. Yeah. Um, fantastic film, amazing film, breakout, amazing stuff. I was just wondering uh, what the journey was of bringing a film like that to the screen. Such a difficult time for filming, um, yeah. and I was wondering regarding the idea for the film. Was it mm. something you came up with pre-pandemic, or was it like a pandemic-born story? it really came out of like just just boredom you know kind of like everyone um you know i was on these these nightly zoom calls with my friends just doing zoom happy hours getting drunk and uh it came from a prank that i played on my friends basically out of, out of uh, sheer boredom like i'd been hearing these weird noises coming from my attic this was pre-pandemic i'd been hearing i'd moved into this new place and every night I'd kind of hear these like creaky footsteps above my room. And I, you know, it was the only, it was the only place that I didn't have access to in this new place. I didn't have a ladder to get up there. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, suddenly lockdown happens and I'm like alone locked down in this place with potentially an ax murderer living above me. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I checked it out and I went, you know, I got, I got a ladder from my next door neighbor. I went up there and I checked around and there was no serial killer, but the, but the attic was like creepy. So I was like, Oh, maybe I can use this as an you know, opportunity to prank my friends. So I built kind of out of cardboard, this weird contraption that allowed me to like be on a zoom call with my friends like this, and then just slot it into this kind of cardboard contraption and film my, film my laptop screen. So what I did is I took, I took a scene from a horror movie, a found footage horror movie where somebody goes up into an attic and gets eaten alive by a zombie child that like jumps out at them. 
Uh, and what I did is I got my friends on a Zoom call and I told them like, you know, I'm hearing the, the noises in my attic again. I've got a ladder, but I need you guys here for emotional support. Come on, let's let's go and check it out. So I went up into the attic and then I flipped, I flipped my phone, put it in front and played them this clip from the horror movie. And for a split second, they thought this this zombie had like jump, jumped out and eaten my face off. And they, you know, I recorded the whole thing. They freaked out. And it was really just like, I was just like, I was just bored. And, you know, I'd just come off. I was just about to shoot a big TV show. And then suddenly we were locked down. I had all this kind of like, I was just wanted to, wanted to make something. Uh, so I put this little prank together. I put it on online. I put it on Twitter and it ended up kind of blowing up and becoming this like, like silly viral video. And it was really, it was really nothing more than that. But, you know, off the back of that, and a lot of people, a lot of people hadn't seen the film that I'd lifted the clip from. So they kind of thought that maybe it was, maybe I'd found some way of like constructing, you know, making this as a, as a, as a real horror movie. And somehow I'd like manufactured this zombie. And uh, <laughs> so, so all these people start, you know, all these companies and places started emailing me being like, can we, uh, you know, can we do a longer version of this? Because it was really at that point, you know, it was really at that point where it, it, we didn't, there were no COVID restrictions for filming. We didn't know whether anyone would be able to film anything that year. So it, this seemed like the only viable way of doing things. And, you know, so we got all these companies calling and being like, you know, is there a longer version of this? And, you know, of course, when somebody asks you that, you say there absolutely is. And then you come up, come up with it after the fact. So it kind of came, yeah, came together very quickly and very haphazardly. Yeah, I mean that is that is like a really ingenious idea. The stuff with the um with the phone. Um, I noticed I watched a lot of your your shorts uh, in sort of prep for this, and a lot of them they boil like so fantastically well down to like a really simple premise. So you've got like salt is like the push and pull between the spreading the salt circles and evading them, and Dawn of the Death is all about the zombie infection playing the hearing and how that changes the zombie story. So I was wondering like how you come up with these simple horror concepts that that are so effective i think the the thing that I, the thing that i try and do well I, I i try and i try and pitch it a lot you know i try and like listen to how i pitch how i pitch something and if i have to say the word and a lot then it's probably too complicated if okay. it's if, if it's this and this and then this happens then it's probably too many things it's probably you know that there's this really interesting i always do that i always like share this with um young filmmakers and young screenwriters there's this great documentary uh but about how they make south park because you know they make they make south park in like a week like they they don't have the they don't have the idea for the episode on monday and then it's airing on saturday and they make the whole thing in a week and they have they have a story principle where they say um you know every scene has to be a but or a therefore and never an and so it has to be this happens, therefore this happens, but this is going to stop it from happening. And it's never this and this and this, because then it becomes like things become tangential. And I think it's very, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the same with, with horror. It's got to be something that feels so simple that the audience almost, uh, almost knows it before you finished saying it. You know, right. there's, a, there's a quote that I always go back to, um, and it's on the poster for It Follows, which I used to have up in my office. And the, the, the poster quote says, um, it feels like a story you've known your whole life. And I think the best horror always boils down to that. It's something that feels innate in some way. And, um, you know, one of the things that I like to do is take take a, a formula, take, a, take an aspect of the genre that's familiar and then just tweak it ever so slightly. Just, you know, take, um, take, a, take a, you know, the, a zombie apocalypse movie, but populate it with, um, 
with deaf characters. What does that do? That makes it feel fresh. You know, take a kind of pretty simple Ouija board, you know, seance gone wrong movie with host, but you said it during this, you know, the, the, within the specificity of, of lockdown and just that kind of weirdness that we're all going through in 2020. And suddenly it feels like something, something new. And right. I think there's, you know, I don't think people need to be think, thinking in terms of reinventing the whole genre. It's just about tweaking it, coming at it in a way that's, that's slightly left field and it'll suddenly, everything will feel fresh. Right. So yeah, taking something that is recognizable, but then adding a new element to it or changing yeah. element in some way. And following that, following that, following that through as well. So, yeah. you know, as soon as, as soon as you introduce a new character, as soon as you say, you know, well, my main characters are deaf, then it's like, oh, all the mechanisms for putting together a scare scene become different then because you're not using sound in the same way that you would with a hearing character. So it's kind of like just letting yourself have fun with introducing a new element and following that through and seeing what the eventuality of that is. Right. Um, so a lot of your films, a lot of your short films and hosts, they often use like they use visual elements such as aspect ratio and coloring to like help mm. tell the stories. Um, yeah. But then when you went over to like Zoom for host, and I haven't seen it yet, but I believe dash cams all shot on like a live stream. Yes. Um, that restricts that in quite a significant way, I imagine. Yeah. How how do you feel working within these filming devices like Zoom has changed the way you tell stories? I think it's made me a better storyteller. And I think, you know, I use the word storyteller rather than filmmaker because I think the, the, the kind of principles of storytelling become much more front and center. When you get rid of all the toys, you get rid of your your Ari Alexa and your lights and all the all the gear that, that usually kind of bogs you down. It becomes very much about how is the audience feeling? What what you what emotions are you trying to elicit in the audience? And how do we do this? We've got a very limited canvas to do this. And with with host, it was kind of you know the language was very much established because it was the language of these Zoom calls that we've been doing endlessly throughout the lockdown. And so it became more about it became more about the character beats. It became more about um, introducing. Um, you know, introducing elements of horror language into this this very rigid structure that we had, um, but yeah, but really, really, it was it was like we've got we've got there's kind of two modes or three modes. You've got you've got kind of point of view, you've got a close up on the character when you're single screen, or you've got a wide shot which becomes your kind of grid view. Uh, you know, where you've got four or five screens and you've got to kind of watch. You've got to watch every single one of those screens when you've got a group shot because if somebody you know, Gemma might be talking down in the bottom left, but if somebody's watching Rodina in the top right, you're going to want something to be happening there as well. So it kind of became an interesting puzzle to put together. And that's, you know, that's more on Brenna Ranga, the editor, who was very much kind of, it was, you know, I think it's in a large part down to her that the film feels like it's got that forward momentum and it doesn't feel baggy and it doesn't feel... Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't feel like the for, the format uh, ever kind of bogs us down, right? Yeah. Actually, speaking of editing, um, you utilize jump scares frequently and effectively. There's some phenomenal ones in Host. There's one with a zoom filter that haunts me. I just have to say, it is amazing. Um, do you think there is a specific science to crafting a good jump scare? Like, do you have any tips? Mm-hmm. I think. Um... I think putting together a, a, a really good jump scare is, is uh, it's, it's an art, you know, and I'm not, 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 not saying that I've mastered that art, but I think, you know, you, you, people like, um, 
like James Wan, who you know, who he's not he's not necessarily a filmmaker that gets talked about in in high regard, you know, as as a as, as a craftsman. But his um, his ability to put together a, a jump scare, I think, is like second to none. And he's somebody that I, that I you know I really study how he puts together jump scares, and a lot of it, um, a lot of it, I find is about playing off the familiarity of the audience. You know, there's there are certain kind of um, there are certain kind of uh, signifiers to an audience that you're that you're about to you're about to pull a trick on them. You know, it's like the the classic cliched one is like somebody opens a mirror cupboard and then closes it, and you're expecting there to be somebody behind. You know, so if you wanted to like subvert that, you'd you'd have them open the, open the the mirror cupboard, have them close it. The whole audience is getting ready for you to play the familiar jump. You close it. Huh, nothing there and then maybe something smashes through the mirror at you, you know so you kind of right. um, it's 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 classic kind of you know look what i'm doing with this hand and then they're not looking you know they're not looking at the um what the other hand's doing but it's really about yeah it's really about playing the familiarity and then and then also just like playing the offbeat as well the audience is the audience expects you to kind of adhere to the usual rhythms of a jump scare you know you build up you pay off in the way that they're familiar with. And if you can play it a beat late or a beat early or, you know, in a, in an unconventional way, um, that's usually, that's usually when you really get them and you can, you can sit at the back of the cinema and see everyone jump in unison. And it's the best feeling. I'm assuming that's like a conversation that you have with your editor about like the editing. It plays a heavy role in how to put those scares together. Yes. And sound as well. It's, um, you know, it's really hard sometimes to to tell if something like that is is landing um, until you've got until you've got the edit just right, and it can be down to frames. You know, me and me and Brenner are really specific about um, how we put everything. You know, we go through frame by frame of every movie and just make sure that everything's earning its place. And the sound is the really important thing, and it's hard to know sometimes as well. You can kill it with sound. You know, sometimes if you uh, you know, there are classic things that you look out for, whether, you know, just before a jump scare, the sound will usually go a bit quieter so that when the jump scare happens, you, there's more of a difference um, in the sound levels. But sometimes if you go too much with that, you can anticipate it. And I'm always hearing that whenever I go and see a horror movie in the theatre, I can always hear the little dip just before the jump scare is about to happen. It clues me to it and it never gets me. So you've got to really, you, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to get other people into the room and get them to watch it because you go, you it's like a joke, you know, it, it becomes dead to you after a while. Yeah, um, actually, do you have do you have a favorite jump scare that you could that you could point to as like maybe an inspiration, maybe not, but just something that really got you? I love the scene in Conjuring Two where the main character, the little girl, is is home from school and she's watching. She's watching TV with the um, the creepy leather chair that um, that the ghost used to sit in is, is behind her, and the TV TV keeps changing. She goes up and she's hitting it, and then she sees in the reflection that he's sitting there in the chair. And then the remote goes missing, and the channels keep changing. And it, it, James James Wan does a great a great job of of making sure that all your attention is on that chair. And then the final the final jump scare happens where he's he's going pushing in on the girl pushing in on the chair, pushing in on the girl, pushing in on the chair. And all your, all your attention is on the chair. And then he cuts back to a reaction shot on the girl and the ghost is right behind her there. And it's, it's, really, it's really simple, but it's just about putting all your focus somewhere that you're not going to pay off. You're actually going to kind of bring it, um, you know, bring it, bring it from this other direction. Um, 
The use of sound, as you mentioned, obviously plays a huge role in in horror and also specifically your films. Um, you talked about editing and the way that you've worked with collaborators on that. Uh, how did you learn about sound design? Are there any sort of resources or inspirations you'd suggest people look into? I no, I mean, it's, it, well, well, first of all, I just want to shout out Callum Sample, who's who's been kind of my sound designer in all these shorts and has done the, these two movies, and he's watching him watching him work has been kind of uh illuminating to me in terms of like i don't really i i like i i used i used to um self shoot you know i know my way around a camera a little bit so i kind of have a bit of a language when it comes to that side of things i don't have a, i i can't speak that language when it comes to sound so like watching watching him uh edit and watching how he kind of how he does things and how his brain works has helped me kind of like learn a little bit of 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 what of what's possible and like what's a useful way of communicating uh, communicating the ideas that I have and I you know I try to um, when it comes to sound you know sometimes I'm very specific but I tr- you know I try it's like music like I try and talk in terms of the experience I want the audience to have and you know this moment has to give them this has to elicit this feeling in them this this uh, you know, this bit where they're creeping through the hallway, we want the attention to be on that door. So let's add a creaky sound. Let's do, you know, it's it's all about where the attention is being placed. And the sound really, the sound does that in a way that doesn't feel heavy handed. So it's a real tool to be able to, um, to just nudge the audience without them feeling manipulated. Yeah, I mean, the amount of, of love that you have for the genre and for filmmaking as a whole is like super clear when we watch what you do. And I think that might be to the fact that you've been making films for over a decade, very long time, shooting shorts since you were like 15, I believe, filming your debut at 17. Looking back, how do you feel about starting out so young? Like, were there advantages and disadvantages to starting out at such a young age? Yeah, definitely. I I mean, the the advantage is, you you know, like like with Host, which which hit at this point, just this this perfect this perfect time when you know it everyone was ready for for a movie like that and it hit it hit in this kind of zeitgeisty way and I, you know and i think if it if it had been a little later it would have felt a bit tacky um you know it was very i think that the response the overwhelmingly positive response was very much about when when we released it and i think the same thing was true of strings which was my first um feature that i made when i was 17 it came it came out at a point where you know cheap digital technology was just becoming readily available, it was it was just before uh, DSLR cameras, you know the five D, the five fifty D, those very cheap Canon cameras, which could suddenly you know suddenly you could shoot cinema quality um, footage for, for for pretty cheap. We came out just around that time, and that really became the conversation around the film. And the film is fine; the film's okay, but it's you know it's very much a film made by a seventeen year old who didn't know what he was doing. But we, you know, the story became this seventeen-year-old kid has made made a movie, and you know, so if he can do it, anyone can do it, and it, it, we kind of rode that wave in a way that was really useful for the for the film. I, you know, it's why it's why I never recommend to um, to film students now to to young filmmakers. I never recommend taking that approach. Like, don't don't just go don't just go and make a don't just go and make a a feature because th- th- it's well because unless unless you really think it's unless you really think it's going to make waves. We became, we were very lucky that we hit that, that we hit that wave and um, you kind of gained that notoriety. I think, I think if I was to, 
I'd go the opposite way now. I think our I think our appetites have have changed, and I think the way that people get discovered that I'm seeing more often than not is with short, scary, punchy, uh, you know, one or two minute viral horror movies. So that you know, that's specifically specifically horror. You look at people like David Sandberg who made Lights Out, and you know, within a year was shooting a ho- you know Hollywood studio feature, which you know that's that's one way and that's one way into the in, into the industry or well, that's one way to kind of jump all the rungs of the ladder but um for, for me kind of making making a feature at that age and then you know, moving straight into the industry getting an agent moving to london you know starting to kind of make all my living off of being a being a director i felt like it was it was great. It was great in a way because it, me- it meant that I didn't have to go and be a runner and, and serve people coffee. But but, it, but also I didn't know who I was as a filmmaker, and it's very hard to um, it's very hard to sell yourself in the industry unless you know what your identity is as a filmmaker. You know, or, or a kind of uglier way of saying it is like what your brand is as a filmmaker. And I, you know, my first feature was this kind of like low key Richard Linklatery drama which wasn't what I was, you know, I'm as, I'm as into horror as I am into art house, but I, you know, I, I was kind of, um, I was kind of leaning very art house cause I was a pretentious teenager. And, and actually, you know, as I, over the next five years after making that movie, what I started to discover is that the, what I really loved making was, was genre movies. And so it took me five years being in the wilderness almost and not getting anything made apart from a couple of commercials and music videos. It took that time to kind of reestablish myself as somebody that people would trust to do horror movies and trust to invest in as a horror movie director. So it, it, I felt like I was exposed to the industry a bit too early in a way. And actually one of the benefits of, of doing shorts and staying like slightly on the outskirts of the industry is that when you fully enter with a short, you know, you, 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 you do 10 shorts and maybe your 10th short is the one that plays at all the big festivals and that, uh, that gets you in the room with BFI and film four and all these places um, you want that film to be an encapsulation of who you are as a filmmaker. And you want to be able to go into that room and say, here's who I am. Here's the film I want to make. And here's the short film that proves I can do it. And I think that's a very valuable, that's a very valuable way of doing things and a very valuable use for short films and, um, and kind of figuring out where your interests lie. Um, I kind of had to do that all slightly more in the, I was slightly more visible doing that and learning the ropes. Fantastic sort of look back at your career there. Um, You have done a lot of stuff. And over this interview, you've shouted out a few of the collaborators you've worked with and how important they are to what you do. I'm wondering, especially because you say you, you didn't do many courses with film school things. How did you meet those collaborators? That's a good question. I uh, hung out with I hung out with other directors first first and foremost. You know, I, whenever my films would play at festivals, I do um, the you know the B, the BFI the BFI would sometimes put on kind of networking events and things like that that I would that I would go to and I'd meet other filmmakers and um, really really what I would do is is I'd as I was making these low budget music videos or low budget short films. I just collect. I'd collect the people who were on the same wavelength as me, and uh, I think there's kind of tendency in the industry to think that you need to swap out your collaborators as you as you climb the ladder, and that you know as you go to bigger 
as you as you move on to bigger things you need to start working with people who are accustomed to that you know accustomed to a bigger budget or a bigger set and you know i see it a lot where people kind of leave their their old collaborators behind and what i've tried to do is i've tried to keep a very tight-knit group of um of collaborators who i trust and who i think have the same um references as me and the same aspirations as me and I, I it's been really nice to kind of grow together with a group of a group of people and it feels like um the work the work only becomes stronger because of that shorthand that you um that you gain by working with the same people again and again and uh yeah i think i think even if even if it's a very small group of people i think i think if you if you feel like you click creatively with somebody it like when you're starting out, you think that that's going to happen a lot and you think that those people will come and, you know, will come and go, but actually it's very rare. And I think, hold on, hold on to those people. And it's all, and it's, you know, it's very lonely when you start to progress and you leave these people behind and you are just there, you're there on your own, surrounded by, surrounded by strangers. I think it's, it's, there's a, there's a real benefit and a boldness that comes with feeling like you're part of a squad. Yeah. Uh, no, that's really nice. Thank you. Um, last question. So say young filmmaker wants to get involved in horror and they have time to watch three horror movies. That is it. And then they have to go and make a short film. Which oh three horror films would you put in front of them? Um, I would say Psycho, maybe Psycho slash Halloween, like either either one, because I think both of those films are so they're both they're both responsible for setting up the language of 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 the horror movie and you know specifically the slasher movie but it but it, it kind of um it's it's pretty applicable across across a lot of the the genres you know i think watch those movies watch them once with the sound and watch them once on mute and watch watch how the watch you know i i, I always i always watch halloween on on mute in the background while I'm working, you know, especially on, on, uh, when I'm storyboarding my horror stuff, because it's so the way it's put together, uh, you know, for, for a very low budget, low budget movie, the way that it's put together is so, is so classy. And so, um, every shot, every shot is intentional and, uh, and, and designed to kind of, um, to elicit the most tension. So, and you know, this, this, the same with the same with psycho in a more kind of classical way. Um, so I'd say those. Two, I'd say those two. I'd say I, I I get a lot. I or I got a lot from watching Paranormal Activity, because um, I think Paranormal Activity the thing that um, the thing that Paranormal Activity sh- showed to me and it kind of kind of like it blew my mind when I was watching it. I was watching Paranormal Activity in this crowded this crowded cinema full of people. This is you know kind of before it really it really blew up. And I remember, you know, halfway through the film, you're what you're you're in the bedroom with them. It's night vision, and the door just moves that tiniest little, tiniest little bit, and the whole cinema screamed like that, you know. And and it's amazing, and it, and it you know they screamed as though you know a shark had jumped out the water, or you know you'd seen something horrific. But the, the thing that thing that the thing that occurred to me in that moment was that as a horror filmmaker, you basically tell the audience how to watch your movie. You, you kind of explain to them the parameters of how you're going to scare them. And that movie, that movie got you to lean in so much and it, and it, it got you to kind of pay attention to every single aspect of the frame with such detail that the door moving a little inch became as scary as a shark jumping out the water, 
you know, it, it, so, so, you know, I think it's a really, um, it's a really interesting, interesting one for kind of setting the parameters of your, of your horror, you know, in host, in host, what I was trying to do is set up the, the first, the first half of that movie was set up as though we were watching paranormal activity and you're watching the background, you're watching to see is the, is the candle flickering a little bit too much? Is the, is the door moving? You know, was that, was that there a second ago? And then you lull the audience into expecting these scares, you know, on the level of a door squeaking. And then you go berserk in the final act and it suddenly shocks people into, uh, uh, you know, the movie steps up to another level they weren't expecting. So you can kind of almost weaponize that and use that against the audience. And then, um, uh, and then there's a movie called The Innocence, which I'd say to watch, which is uh, my favorite horror movie. And I think, I think the best horror movie ever made, which is 1962. It's black and white. You know, people might think, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be boring. It's going to be antiquated. Um, it's actually, it's actually one of the most effective supernatural uh, horror movies you'll ever see. It's really scary. It's really smart. It's, um, you know, a, a lot of the tricks that people were celebrating in the haunting of Hill house, the Netflix series from a couple of years ago were totally taken from, from the innocence. It plays with, it plays with the frame. It tells you, you know, it's a very good one to watch for framing for, for, um, you know, especially it's a widescreen, it's a widescreen cinemascope movie. So it, the way that it uses negative space, the way that it, 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 um, it sets up all of its all of its shots so that you're constantly looking over the character's shoulders. You're constantly searching the darkness that's a very big trick that you can use in horror movies is framing in a way that gives a lot of space for the audience to imagine things or to, uh, to, um, to anticipate things, um, jumping out of the shadows, creeping up on you. Um, the, the audience is, the audience is so active when they watch a horror movie, it's another thing you can weaponize against them. So the innocence is a great one to watch. Again, you can watch that with the, with the sound off, but the sound design is really great in that movie as well. Lovely. Thank you very much. Well, that is everything. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on. No problem. That was fun. Huge thank you to Rob Savage for that chat. Host is available to watch now on the horror streaming service Shudder. Next week, we're talking about documentaries with two Oscar-winning documentarians. Until then, this has been Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London, and I'm Adrian Wooden. Thanks very much for listening.